The first Mercedes overtook the Renault on the driver's side, speeding past and blocking it off at an angle. The second Mercedes swung in from behind and blocked off any chance of escape. The American lived in a cul-de-sac and was now completely boxed in. He glanced at his attache case. With AK-47s held at the ready, the masked man approached his car, barking orders in Arabic. They had rehearsed this before. It took all of a handful of seconds in the blink of an eye and with the barrel end of a Kalachnikov to his temple, the American vanished into her Mercedes. I was assigned to the hostage location task force at the CIA. There were primarily three of us and it was a full-time job to try to locate the hostages. But make no bones about it, President Reagan and others said, find Bill Buckley. If you can locate Bill Buckley, you can locate the other Americans and the Westerners that were held. It was one of those moments very similar to when Ambassador Stevens was missing in Benghazi. When there's a sense of dread that just overtakes the entire nation and the entire intelligence community and grinds everything to a halt. Welcome to the Global Recon Podcast. I'm your host, John Hendricks. I have a very special guest on with me for this podcast, uh, Mr. Fred Burton. Um, how's it going? Hey, John. Thanks for having me on the podcast. Uh, thank you for coming on. So you've been working in the world of counterterrorism and, uh, for a long time, but you started uh, working for the State Department. Can we kind of talk about it from the beginning and then... After talk about after talking about your career in the government, just kind of walk through what you've been up to since then. Be happy to. Uh, I was a police officer uh, first outside of Washington D.C. Uh, in Montgomery County, Maryland, and uh, then we used to have the Secretary of State that lived in our uh, district, and so I knew the State Department had these agents that weren't like the Secret Service, but they did something. No one was really sure what they really did. So uh, I did a little bit of research and uh, uh, decided to uh, apply to the State Department as a special agent and was lucky enough to get hired, John, uh, after the uh, embassy bombings in Beirut uh, when uh, a commission was put together and they decided that the State Department needed uh, hundreds of more agents. So, uh, you know, a lot of it was timing. So I went uh, as a cop to being a special agent. And uh, then right out of uh, basic agent training, uh, I was uh, assigned to uh, the counterterrorism branch of the State Department. And at that point in time, we had uh, three of us. There was just three of us for the entire world. And uh, yeah, that it, it that's also kind of an indictment of uh, the kind of focus uh, in the 80s there were on terrorism. But um, and and because I was uh, the youngest in the group, uh, I was given the Middle East, and uh, so anything that kind of blew up or uh, any terrorism investigations or hijackings or hostage takings that took place uh, out of the Middle East, uh, I was uh, either uh, involved with, uh, engaged with, or investigating. And did you ever work with other agencies or military in involving any any incidents out of the Middle East? 
Oh, yeah. We were consistently working um, hand in glove with either uh, the CIA, uh, the FBI on, in certain cases. So early on in the 80s, uh, the FBI actually did very little terrorism investigations overseas. Uh, most of the work was done by us. Uh, we were the organization that no one ever really heard of uh, and uh, had been around since 1916. Uh, but uh, we just didn't have the publicity uh, or the the agents assigned a lobby for additional resources or so forth on Capitol Hill. So. Uh, but the State Department's uh, been involved in the protection of Americans and the investigation of uh, terrorism for a long time, even going back to the 60s uh, and so forth. Okay, so how long did you finish your career in that capacity? No, I didn't, uh, John. I um, I spent um, – uh, several years there, uh, actually almost 15 years doing nothing but terrorism uh, investigations. And, you know, I worked over at the CIA on the hostage location task force when the hostages were missing in Lebanon. Um, I, I went over to FBI headquarters for a while, uh, then bounced back to state. Uh, and um, I had spent enough time in the business that um, my career had kind of plateaued and I knew it was time to go. Um, I was also involved and I've, I've actually gotten much more credit than I deserve for this, but, uh, I was involved with the capture of, uh, Ramsey Yosef, the mastermind of the first world trade center bombing, uh, in 1993. And, um, I ruffled a lot of feathers with that case, uh, because we, we didn't play by the rules and, uh, Washington can be a very vindictive place. So I, I kind of knew my career was over and, um, you know, I left. And, uh, so now I'm in Austin, Texas, uh, working for, uh, Stratfor, which stands for strategic forecasting. It's a, uh, private intelligence company and we try to make sense of the world. Uh, we cover geopolitics, terrorism, uh, economics. And, um, um, so that's what I do now. And you also host the uh, Staff World Podcast? I do. Uh, I have my own uh, podcast series uh, here at Stratfor. It's called uh, The Pen and Sword. And um, we interview um, authors that uh, put together books on geopolitics or international relations or terrorism or espionage. So uh, I spend a great deal of time doing that. Uh, and then uh, working on my books and, you know, writing uh, for our website. Right. So you've also written several books as well, right? Can you just uh, drop the titles of those books for the audience? Sure. I'd be happy to. Uh, my first book uh, was called Ghost, uh, Confessions of a Counterterrorism Agent, which uh, talk about my career uh, in the 80s on up into the 90s. And then my second book um, is called Chasing Shadows, and this is a story of uh, an Israeli intelligence officer that was murdered in my neighborhood when I was a kid. And I went back and uh, looked at the case and figured out uh, what happened and um, who did it. Uh, the the uh, Israeli uh, was the military attache assigned to the Israeli embassy in Washington, D.C. And he was gunned down on the front lawn of his uh, house and uh, his wife and, and his children watched him die. It was just a horrible event. Um, and then my third book um, 
is about Benghazi, and it's called Under Fire. Um, it was uh, the first book I've ever had, which was a uh, New York Times and Los Angeles Times bestseller, and uh, uh, HBO uh, optioned that for a uh, made-for-TV um, film. And then my last book uh, that's out uh, is called Beirut Rules, and it's the story of the only CIA station chief to ever have been kidnapped and murdered. Right, and I would like to, um, later on in the podcast, I would like to get into the, uh, Beirut Rules, um, as, as I do find that sort of a fascinating and important part of our history Um especially related to counterterrorism and, and, and other things that we're dealing with today. Um, <clears throat> so I wanted to ask you about the development of modern terrorism. Um, it kind of seems like there are more terrorists now than there were 20 years ago. Um, so what I was wondering is, is this just that there's always been violent groups out there in the world? And they're just falling in line under one banner, or is it that they're falling in line under uh, this type of ideology of like an Osama bin Laden or or guys like that? Well, it's really a good question, John. When you look at uh, the history of modern day terrorism, at least going back to the '60s, uh, we actually had uh, frightening numbers of terrorism inside the continental United States. Uh, uh, in the late 60s and also into the 70s. And uh, a good bulk of that was uh, funded and sponsored by the uh, Soviet Union. Uh, and their efforts were uh, to try to destabilize America. So, you know, you're looking at the groups like the Black Panther Party, you know, the Cleaver faction of the Black Panther Party, the Weather Underground, uh, and so forth. Um, we had a tremendous amount of bomb threats, bombing of police stations, multinational corporations, uh, and then, of course, you know, the horrific assassinations of Robert F. Kennedy, uh, uh, John F. Kennedy, and, and certainly Martin Luther King, um, and the list just continues. So uh, terrorism has been around forever, um, and when I first got in the business uh, – you know, clearly uh, everybody remembered the Munich massacre, which was the 1972 murder of the 11 Israeli athletes in in uh, Germany. And that was somewhat of a game changer because that act of terrorism kind of uh, developed a special operations cap capacity, uh, your, your notion of counter sniper teams and SWAT teams. Uh, and then uh, in the early 80s, uh, we certainly had global terrorism, you know, with the likes of the radical Palestinian groups like Black September, the right. Abu Nidal organization and so forth. So um, when you step into the, the history of terrorism, you know, kind of all roads lead back to Black September and the Munich massacre. And then that springboards into uh, Hezbollah, which uh, is directly Iranian backed and sponsored uh, and then, of course, um, that leads us into Al Qaeda. So, uh, for your listeners' sake, you know, if you focus on those three major groups—Black September, Hezbollah, and Al Qaeda—you uh, know, that's a good bulk of uh, modern-day terrorism. But you know, terrorism has been around for a long time. Right, and so Black September, after the um, the Olympics, 
the Israelis went after them, um, and they were successful. Uh, I think often they did make a mistake, and I think they ended up killing the wrong person. Um, if I remember, I think it was in Switzerland. It was in Lilyhammer, um, and uh, my book Chasing Shadows uh, uh, talks a lot about that because uh, uh, the Israeli intelligence officer that was murdered in Bethesda, Maryland, was actually murdered by Black September. Really? Yes, and he was uh, part of uh, the tit-for-tat uh, shadow war that was going on between the Israeli Mossad and the Black September organization. So uh, Black September carries out these horrific attack in Munich. The Israelis stand up what was called the Wrath of God squads, and they go out and they start targeting all of the Black September leadership operators and one by one killing them. Uh, and But uh, a little-known fact after that was the Palestinians were doing a pretty good job of uh, utilizing double agents and uh, actually uh, shooting and killing uh, Israeli intelligence officers uh, to include uh, Colonel uh, Joe Alon there in Bethesda, Maryland, in my neighborhood. So, wow. uh, yeah, there was a period of time, John, that um, Black September in about a two-year reign uh, had more um, Israeli blood on their hands than you know, any other terrorist organization uh, in history, just with the pace and the tempo. And um, really, they were, they were quite good at uh, killing Israelis. So did they have any kind of uh, backing from a major government like the Iranians or something? Like how, how were they so good at what they did? Well, uh, a lot of it was the error and the, the lack of technology. Uh, you know, it's, 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 uh, you have to think back. When I first started, we were using 3 by 5 index cards and typewriters. Mm. Uh, we didn't have computers. We didn't have cell phones. We had old-fashioned Motorola beepers. So if you go back uh, 10 years before that, uh, Black September was able to move around Europe, you know, buying weapons at will. Um, they had a lot of support uh, in those days by uh, Saddam Hussein's Iraq mm. uh, and getting identity documents. They had support from the Libyans as well as the Algerians. Uh, a lot of them actually were uh, roaming around the world with uh, Algerian diplomatic passports. Uh, so, uh, they were getting a lot of nation state support, which, uh, is critical when you start looking at a counterterrorism strategy. You know, that's why, um, you know, state sponsors of terror, nation state sponsors of terror are always very difficult to kind of stay in front of. Right. And so I know when the Israelis went after them, they were targeting them all over Europe. They were catching some of these guys. They were. Uh, they were doing some very brilliant operations, putting bombs in uh, underbeds, um, in vehicles. Uh, they actually put an improvised explosive device in a phone. Uh, and um, so uh, they did, um, you know, their, their mission was twofold. One was uh, vengeance to get even, uh, but they also wanted to um, disrupt other terrorist attacks that could have been in the works and planned by the Black September organization. But, uh, you know, Black September was operating as, as kind of a secret 
uh, wing of the PLO, the Palestinian Liberation Organization at the time. Uh, and it was basically Arafat's uh, covert uh, intelligence service to, to uh, kill Jews. And um, they, um, they, they pulled off some spectacular attacks. Yeah, they, they, they did a lot of damage. And I think uh, looking at Arafat as well, some of the early instances of um, sort of what we call now like IEDs or, or bombs left on the side of the road was was really Arafat attacking the Jews uh, early on. Um, when well, I guess when he was a young man in um, in the Middle East. And it was very ironic. I'll, I'll tell you uh, an interesting story. In '73, uh, Golda Meir uh, made a trip to New York City and. Uh, Black September uh, put three car bombs in New York that fortunately did not detonate. Uh, one was at um, an Israeli bank. Another one was at El Al, uh, uh, the airport at JFK. And another one was in Midtown Manhattan. Um, and then ironically, you fast forward to the late 80s and the early 90s, uh, I ended up working um, a lot of protective details protecting Yasser Arafat uh, whenever he would come to New York City for events or, or to Washington, D.C. So, um, you know, the irony of uh, one man's um, terrorist is another man's freedom fighter was just kind of interesting. So right. uh, it, um, it, it, it was just very odd, uh, the kind of world that uh, uh, you lived in in that time period. So you you said you were involved in capturing one of the guys who was responsible for the first World Trade Center bombing. Did that happen stateside or were you led to the Philippines at all? Uh, well, uh, we're talking about Ramsey Yosef, who was the uh, very good bomb maker. Um, and um, in fact, he was bin Laden's favorite bomb maker. Um, he had... Uh, uh, blown up the World Trade Center the first time in 93, escaped, uh, and he had placed bombs on planes, uh, and he went to the Philippines where he was planning to uh, assassinate the Pope. Uh, right. But as, as luck would have it on our side, uh, he actually started a fire. Uh, the fire department came, the intel service came, and Lo and behold, we were able to piece together uh, through cooperation with the Philippine National Police that this was Ramsey Yosef. And, and so he went back on the run, John, and um, what happened was uh, we developed an informant uh, using the Rewards for Justice program, the $20 million that most people know uh, towards bin Laden. In those days, it was uh, a $2 million cap um, so we used the Rewards for Justice program uh, to develop an informant uh, to tell us where Yosef was, and and um, he identified him being in a hotel in Islamabad, Pakistan, uh, and that's where uh, Ramsey Yosef was captured by uh, special agents of the State Department. I see. Okay. And and so some of the other guys involved were they captured stateside? Yes, uh, early early on after the first uh, World Trade Center bombing, uh, there were 
uh, at least one, uh, if memory serves me correct, correct, that was picked up in the United States. I think his name was, uh, oh, I just can't recall his name. I'm having a, a, a senior moment, but, um, um, uh, there was a couple picked up here, and of course they were tied into uh, Sheikh Omar Abdul Rahman, the blind Sheikh, uh, who was at the Brooklyn Mosque, and um, he was ultimately arrested for sedition and put into federal custody, and he died not too long ago, actually. And then the rest of them kind of scattered to the winds, but um, Yosef was the the brains and the operational commander of that bombing and there's no doubt in my mind he would have uh, killed more if we had not picked him up and in fact when he was in pakistan uh he was actually planning attacks against uh, the u.s embassy of the united states ambassador there so um we got very fortunate as occasionally you get in this business by uh, uh just getting lucky getting an informant that that was very successful in, in helping us uh, bring Yosef to justice, and he's serving life at uh, the Supermax in Colorado. Right, and he was connected to Khalid Sheikh Mohammed, who later on was kind of masterminded the uh, 9-11 attacks. That's correct. Uh, they were all interconnected, and uh, uh, there might have been actually some family nexus between Yosef and Khalid Sheikh right. Mohammed. Uh, so, um, we had opportunities, uh, unfortunately that we, uh, somewhat squandered to, uh, kill capture, uh, Khalid Sheikh Mohammed, uh, before he was ultimately arrested. But, um, um, you know, when you step back in that time period, especially before nine 11, John, it's, it's hard for people to understand how, limited resources were devoted to terrorism from a national security strategy. Uh, you did not have um, your fusion centers. Uh, you had only a handful of joint terrorism task forces. Uh, there was no TSA. There's no um, priority placed on uh, combating terrorism by the U.S. government from a foreign policy perspective in those days. So, you know, it, it took the strategic strike by al-Qaeda on 9-11 to kind of reshape and refocus uh, national security priorities to make terrorism an issue. Right. I mean, before 9-11, uh, the things you can bring on aircraft, the planes, and, and the, the security was so low, as, you know, regarding airports and things like that. Um, and I think one of the failures that led up to 9-11 was different agencies weren't speaking to each other and sharing information. Oh, that's right. Uh, we had horrendous turf battles. Um, most people would be shocked to know how bad they were at times. And, and of course, there was another um, historical moment. I mean, I worked on the bombing of uh, Pan Am 103 over Lockerbie, Scotland, and we lost uh, some of our agents on that flight. And that was a Libyan-backed attack, uh, Libyan uh, state sponsor attack, Libyan intelligence service. And, uh, in those days, um, literally you had bags going onto aircraft that were not screened for bombs. So I know it's hard to believe in our post nine 11 world, but, uh, that wasn't too long ago. Yeah. It's unbelievable. Just kind of looking back, like I, I can't even remember 
what that must have been like compared to now. Like, I travel a lot myself, and I'm also a photographer, so I, you know, I bring all my gear with me, and it's like it's such a hassle. Like with TSA, you got to open your bag and bring your laptop out and show them all your gear, and you know, before you're allowed to to get on the plane. So I just can't imagine guys can just bring, you know, duffel bags loaded with bombs onto the aircraft. It's just it's insane. It really was, and if you look back at some of the uh, earlier hijackings from uh, that time period. Uh, pretty much uh, the hijackers just smuggled the weapons aboard the aircraft because they just weren't screened. And, um, you know, we learned our lesson at Lockerbie over why you need to screen for bags going into luggage holds. But, you know, it, it took Lockerbie to change how we screen for bombs going into planes. Um, and I'm sad to say it took 9 11 you know, to shift a national priority and focus uh, into these uh, organizations like Al Qaeda that you know were hell bent on on just killing innocent Americans. Right, and they'd been running attacks and operations in Africa and and overseas for a couple of years before nine eleven. Oh, without a doubt. Uh, you know, going back to, you know, I I trace uh, the beginning of. Um, this to the assassination of um, Rabbi Meir Kahani on the streets of Manhattan by uh, uh, an Egyptian terrorist by the name of Al-Sayed Nosser. And Nosser was also tied into the blind sheikh at the Brooklyn Mosque. And, you know, this kind of preceded the first World Trade Center. Then we had that happen. And then after that, we had a whole range of different kinds of Al-Qaeda-sponsored attacks and plots. And you see, also, you only see the catastrophic results of failure. But uh, when I was in the saddle as the deputy chief of the counterterrorism division, you know, for every real legitimate threat, I mean, for every real legitimate attack you had, you had a dozen other threats that you were always trying to mitigate and look at around the world. And so, um, you know, uh, and, and you only see the results of some of the successful operations at al- by Al Qaeda at the time. Right, right. So I wanted to get to the the second half of the question, where we're talking about now there seems to be more terrorists than there were twenty years ago uh, when nine eleven happened. And is this just that there there were always violent groups around the world? And they have something to sort of rally around, or are they buying into this radical ideology? I think it's a it's an interesting question that you could probably do a PhD thesis on. Uh, the uh, I think that we've always had violent groups in the world. Uh, I think that uh, they're amplified or magnified by social media, uh, the twenty four by seven news cycle. Uh, Twitter, Facebook, the dark web, whatever. Uh, so um, when you start looking at uh, the expansion of organizations, especially when you are looking at failed states such as Syria and, and others, um, it, it's a challenge to actually get your arms around numbers and so forth. But um, uh, clearly, you know, there is a tempo that's been there that's kind of been you know, I've been in this business since 1981, and um, it's just always been there, and it kind of ebbs and flows and, and and so forth. But 
uh, I think the 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 scary part for me is when you start looking at this is, you know, these organizations seem to uh, at times they're able to uh, identify those vulnerabilities in U.S. security measures, whatever they might be, and and take advantage of them over time, whether that be you know, using something as simplistic as box cutters and flying planes into buildings to attacking U.S. Navy warships like at the USS Cole uh, to to going after vulnerable houses of worship like various synagogues, you know, in B.A. Argentina. So um, they, they seem to, um, you know, always look at those vulnerable aspects of society and, and are able to, to, to strike. Yeah. I think people generally like from the public's perception, I mean, maybe most people aren't thinking so much about it, but the, the, the thinking that people do regarding it, I don't think they give enough credit to how clever some of these groups are and, and how, um, sort of thinking outside the box, um, you know, things that they're doing that really are effective against a, a military power like the United States. Without a doubt. Uh, I, re- I re- vividly recall in 86 uh, going out to a rocket attack at the U.S. Embassy in Madrid, Spain. And uh, this was uh, carried out by the remnants of the old Japanese Red Army. And that individual used a homemade rocket launcher and almost put it through the window uh, of an embassy. Thank goodness it didn't, uh, or people would have been killed. And uh, shortly thereafter, uh, he was picked up uh, by uh, the New Jersey Highway Patrol, New Jersey State Police. On the New Jersey Turnpike, he was bound for... Uh, Manhattan to blow up a uh, U.S. naval recruiting station. So, you know, these folks uh, can move and uh, they adapt very well to their surroundings. And you said this was a Japanese guy? Yeah, his name was Yu Kikamura, and he was a Japanese guy that uh, was one of the remnants of the old Japanese Red Army, and uh, he was, uh, uh, you know, very... uh, Methodical. Uh, he, besides uh, attacking the U.S. embassy in Madrid, uh, he also attacked the U.S. ambassador's residence in Jakarta by using a pretty similar MO. You know, um, rockets launched, homemade rockets launched from a homemade rocket launcher. So, what was his deal? He just he he had some sort of hatred for the U.S. for World War Two. Is that it? No, his his deal was more. Uh, uh, he was part of the um, um, the leftist anarchist wing of um, you know you've got the subset of uh, organizations at the time like the Japanese Red Army, the Red Army faction, the Italian Red Brigades, and so forth. They were more um, uh, Soviet backed. Uh, they were anti-American, anti-imperialist. Um, and uh, anarchist slash terrorist. And and these guys were like left wingers. Uh, for the most part, yes, uh, lean towards at times communism, socialism. Uh, but they're also pretty good criminals. You know, when they weren't uh, putting together terrorist operations, they were also kidnapping, 
uh, CEOs and uh, and um, robbing banks. Wow. Wow, that's pretty interesting. So I wanted to ask you about um, the assassination of an Israeli statesman. Uh, his name was uh, Yazak Rabin. I might be, I'm probably butchering the name, but. It's uh, Yitzhak Rabin. Yitzhak Rabin, okay. Yes, uh, Yitzhak Rabin was the prime minister of Israel. And uh, in 1995, uh, he was assassinated by a ultra-nationalist right-wing Jew uh, in Israel. He had come out of a speaking event uh, and um, was walking to the uh, motorcade cars that were queued up. And a lone gunman, uh, literally, that was lurking around the uh, departure point, uh, pulls out a Beretta and uh, fires several shots into the prime minister and actually hit one of the uh, Shen Bet security officers. And um, that was really kind of a fascinating case. I led a uh, task force looking into that because uh, we were concerned about possible nexus and links to the United States. Uh, because the assassin in Israel that killed Rabin um, had uh, n- uh, links and nexuses back to the United States. And then uh, we had um, very right-wing, hardcore Jewish nationalists in the United States during that time period uh, of the Middle East peace conferences. And and we also had protected uh, Prime Minister Rabin on several visits to the United States. So we were concerned that perhaps uh, some of these uh, radical right-wing Jewish groups were planning to carry out additional attacks on Israeli protectees, uh, predominantly in New York City, Washington, D.C., and Miami. So um, it was a fascinating case. Uh, it, it clearly was, uh, you know, speaking of 9-11 – for us, you know, for the Israeli intelligence services, uh, after Munich, they got pretty good uh, at uh, focusing on uh, Palestinians and Hezbollah, but then they um, didn't focus on the radical Jews inside their own country. So it was a wake-up call. It was their 9-11 when uh, the prime minister was assassinated by an Israeli national. So that's that's pretty interesting. So these guys, so the guy who assassinated him and and those some of those other radical groups, were they like Hasidic Jews who were, um, you know, against any kind of peace talks with the Palestinians? Uh, they were against land for peace, meaning Rabin um, uh, was uh, big on trying to you know uh, create peace with the Palestinians and. And the radical right-wing Jews did not want to give up any land for peace. And they were, you know, an offset of a group uh, called Kahani Kai, uh, which means Kahani lives in Hebrew. And at one point, they were headquartered in New York City in Brooklyn. Uh, But um, after the assassination of Rabbi Meir Kahani, uh, they uh, relocated to Israel. And so, in essence, uh, what happened inside the Israeli intelligence services is they never thought a Jew would kill another Jew. Right. Um, but uh, so this was kind of like their 9-11 moment that 
you know, they had a real problem with the right-wing Jews inside of Israel. So, you know, as evidenced by the assassination of uh, the Israeli prime minister. Yeah, I think a lot of people don't really give um, sort of the attention to the fact that in Israel, people are kind of divided on on how they should move forward regarding any kind of peace with the Palestinians. It, it, it isn't like everyone's on the same page about it. Oh, no, there's uh, horrific divides inside of Israel, uh, which, you know, reach back into inside the United States. And, uh, you know, it was it, it was the equivalent to, you know, the assassination of JFK for us here in the United States, John F. Kennedy, when um, Prime Minister Rabin of Israel was assassinated by, you know, an Israeli national. Yeah, I was in Israel this, over the summer. And um, I was there for, I don't know, maybe eight days or something. And, you know, I spent time in Tel Aviv and, and Jerusalem. And you can really, you can almost feel the difference. Like Tel Aviv is kind of more of a laid back, uh, relaxed. To me, it kind of felt like almost like a Miami vibe with the beach there. And there's a, a lot of partying and stuff like that and restaurants and things. But when you get to Jerusalem... You know, there's there's more neighborhoods of like Hasidic Jews, and you can sort of feel the difference in the air. It's almost hard to describe. No, I know exactly what you mean, uh, and uh, that's very well said. But I'm sure you had a nice trip. Oh yeah, it was amazing. Um, Israel is really an interesting place, and then of course, um, you know, from Israel you take tours into the West Bank and and you visit some of those old historic sites. It was, it was pretty awesome. Yeah, nice place to visit for sure. Yeah, and the food is really good. Awesome, I know. <laughs> yeah. Okay, so um, you have your your most recent book is Beirut Rules, um, but you also brought up the book where you wrote about Benghazi. Can we talk about that a little bit? Sure, can. Um, you want me to kick off with the book about Benghazi? Yeah, please. Yeah, um, I felt very sorry for uh, those five young special agents that were in Benghazi and uh, having come from the same organization. And uh, I knew that um, they did the best job they possibly could in a very difficult circumstance. And there's uh, there's two books, you know, and I tell folks this all the time. Um uh, you know, there's a one book called 13 Hours, which the, the movie was made, and that's the CIA book uh, or those individuals that were working for the CIA that came to uh, the special mission compound where Ambassador Stevens was and, you know, as backup to help the State Department agents and so forth. But, you know, 13 Hours is the CIA version of events, and uh, my book, Under Fire, which I co-wrote with Samuel Katz. Uh, it's the State Department's uh, view and assessment of what took place there. So if you read both, you get a pretty good handle of what took place in Benghazi. Um, you know, I learned a long time ago, John, with, when doing books, um, none of my books are political. You know, I don't take a stand um, one way or the other. I just lay out the facts and let the reader reach their own conclusion as to what happened. Right. But, you know, Benghazi um, 
Ambassador Stevens never should have been there that day. Uh, that's for sure. Um, there was a little bit of human error on the part of uh, the agents that were there, uh, meaning uh, they did not have uh, smoke hoods uh, in the safe haven. And, and a smoke hood, I'm, I'm staring at one in my office, is this device that you put over your head uh, that provides you good air, oxygen, to get yourself out of a smoke-filled building. building. Mm. Uh, I know a lot of people in New York City that have them in their offices and carry them in their bags on the subway. Um, and so that was a little bit of human error there. Uh, there had been so many agents rotating in and out uh, on protection assignments. Uh, nobody checked for smoke hoods in the safe haven. Uh, I think that would have made a difference. Uh, it, it very possibly could have saved Ambassador Stevens' life, um, as well as uh, Sean Smith, the uh, communications officer that that perished due to the smoke inhalation as well. So, um, what I found, and you know, some of your listeners may not know this, but in 1979, uh, we had, of course, the famous hostage takeover of the U.S. Embassy in Tehran. But we also had a uh, U.S. embassy overran in Islamabad, Pakistan, that was also set on fire. And that was kind of lost in the Benghazi, you know, the nasty politics surrounding Benghazi. But, uh, you know, fire is a, is a weapon, uh, can be very effective. And, you know, we learned that lesson in 79 in Islamabad. And, you know, unfortunately, we also learned that lesson in Benghazi. Yeah, obviously, in the aftermath of Benghazi, it, it's been highly politicized. Um, people sort of pointing the finger, and um, it, it's one of those things that obviously it was a terrible tragedy. Tragedy, and I'm not exactly sure um, if if the green light was given to some sort of response force. If they would have even gotten there in time, maybe they would have. I'm not really sure at this point because people say so many different things. Um, it's hard to de decipher what's true and what isn't. Uh, but it's it's certainly been heavily politicized. And I think that uh, using politics in the aftermath of a, a terrible tragedy like that is just wrong, you know. Well, I agree with you, uh, John. Uh, and that's one of the reasons that uh, we put this book together. We wanted to lay out the facts, uh, let the reader be the judge as to what happened. Uh, you know, in reality, on a practical level, uh, you had five highly trained State Department special agents, uh, you know, right down the road, less than a mile away, you had a damn good uh, backup team of uh, CIA ground branch personnel, you know, all former um, Marines, uh, Green Berets, and Navy SEALs. So, um, you know, you had resources in country. Uh, what you did have, though, quite frankly, is a intelligence failure with the inability to predict or forecast or have that human intelligence to tell you that this was going to take place. So, you know, most tragedies boil down to a uh, human intelligence failure at least every in, every case I've ever worked, it, it boils down to that. You know, you lack that human intelligence to tell you, you know, who's going to pull the trigger, or who's going to build the bomb, or where the bomb's going to be. 
And, you know, it just goes to show you that, you know, for as much money as we spend on the U.S. intelligence community, you know, we still have vulnerabilities. Right, right. Okay, so let's see here. Okay, so now I'd like to talk about your book, um, Beirut Rules. And I think it's very important, uh, the, the topics that you covered, because they lead into other things moving forward on how the U.S. dealt with Iran and, and things like that. So can we sort of talk about your book, uh, Beirut Rules? Sure can. Um, Beirut Rules is a, a story of uh, the only CIA station chief ever to be kidnapped and murdered. And uh, I worked on his case when I was a State Department special agent uh, assigned to the CIA and the um, chief of station was named Bill Buckley. And it's important to put this in context because, you know, we had uh, in April of 1983, we had the U.S. embassy leveled by this group called the Islamic Jihad Organization that we really had no idea who the hell they were. And they pretty much took out the eyes and ears of the U.S. intelligence community in the Middle East and because the, the bulk of the CIA station was blown up there. And so Bill Buckley, um, who um, volunteers to go to stand up the U.S. intelligence operations in Beirut after this horrific bombing, uh, he ends up uh, getting kidnapped himself. So uh, – he was part and parcel to a whole laundry list of Westerners that were being kidnapped. And of course, uh, we were paralyzed in Washington because not only do you have one embassy bombing uh, with this horrific loss of life, then you have this the, the U.S. intelligence officer, the senior most U.S. intelligence officer, kidnapped. We have no idea where he is. Um, then while he's in captivity, we have a second embassy bombing, uh, which, um, you know, levels the U S embassy again. So, uh, you know, Bill, um, Buckley, who he, he's one of these guys that was always all in John, um, you know, as an 18 year old, uh, you know, he, he volunteers right out of high school to go to the Korean war where he's awarded the silver star, and Purple Heart for rushing a machine gun nest. Wow. And then he comes back from the war, goes to Boston University to get his degree, then volunteers to go into uh, special forces and becomes one of Kennedy's first Green Berets and sh is shipped off to Vietnam. Oh, wow, I didn't know that. Yeah, where he was awarded a second Silver Star for gallantry under fire. And a host of other, uh, you know, accommodations, and then joins the CIA. So, um, you know, his CIA was very storied. His CIA career was very storied. Uh, you know, he's a paramilitary officer. He's he's bouncing all around the world, going to all these hot spots. And then after the horrific embassy bombing in Beirut, he volunteers uh, to go uh, because that's just the kind of guy he was. Wow, I did not know he was in Special Forces. That's pretty interesting. Yeah, he was a Green Beret. I've got a uh, – there's a great picture of him in the book 
and I've got, I'm staring at it here in my office of him uh, with his green beret on uh, what appears to be inside a C-130 uh, somewhere in Nam. Um, and and the interesting part uh, when when after my Benghazi book was done, I approached the CIA and I said, look, um, I want to tell Bill's story. You know, Bill's the 51st star on the 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 hall. The, the the wall of honor at the CIA as you enter. And I said, um, you know, this is a guy that could inspire a generation to want to serve their country, but we need to tell his story and I want to tell it. And the agency said, you know, we love it. How can we help? And they declassified a lot of his records. And then I've learned to get the family on board. So I approached the family and Bill had, uh, two very elderly family members. Um, they were a little bit reluctant at first. So they realized that, you know, I was one of the good guys that I just wanted to tell a story about their brother who was a hero and they got all in and they, they turned over a treasure trove of, um, you know, original pictures of bill and pictures of bill when he was in Vietnam. Uh, so I was able to tell the personal side of the story and, you know, for me, um, you know, the, the family loved the book and, um, I was very honored to get a testimonial about the book from, uh, president George HW Bush, uh, Bush 41, uh, before he passed away. Uh, so, uh, I don't think I would ever be able to beat that kind of testimonial, uh, for any other book. Uh, but you know, I think President Bush uh, recognized that Bill Buckley was a, a lot like him from that same generation, you right. know, that put that put service first. Did they know each other? I, I know President Bush, he served in some capacity at the CIA. Yes, he was the CIA director. And um, I have no direct evidence that they ever met. But um, after Bill Buckley was kidnapped... Uh, of course, President Bush, you know, would have known all about that. Right. And um, but I, I don't know the answer specifically to that question. That's pretty fascinating. Um, so the the same group that bombed that were they were bombing these uh, buildings. Was it were they the same people who kidnapped him? Yes, uh, this was uh, we were able to ultimately figure out that the Islamic Jihad organization that had blown up the embassies and the Marine barracks in Beirut uh, and hijacked TWA Flight 847 and killed a U.S. Navy diver by the name of Robert Stedham, uh, that this group was actually Hezbollah uh, and they were operating under, uh, you know, they were a, a tool of foreign policy of Iran and they were being utilized to pretty much create havoc for the Americans in an effort to drive America out of Lebanon. And uh, quite frankly, they were very successful at uh, killing. And, you know, before Osama bin Laden and al-Qaeda came around, uh, Hezbollah had more U.S. and Israeli blood on their hands than any other terrorist group in the history of modern-day terror. Right. And I I think that's a huge part of why they have such a Israel, at least the leadership of Israel now, really doesn't like Iran. Um, and so so basically this 
these series of incidents was Hezbollah's sort of emergence on the world stage? It was. Uh, it took us a while to figure that out, but uh, we eventually were able to connect the dots back and uh, you know draw that link from the IJO, the Islamic Jihad Organization, to Hezbollah and ultimately to Iran. So they've, aside from uh, Bill Buckley, they were they were kidnapping Americans in Beirut for a number of years, right? Yeah, at one point in time, I think we had almost 30 hostages. Um, we had uh, Lieutenant Colonel Rich Higgins, Rich Higgins, who was a Marine that was kidnapped and executed by Hezbollah. Uh, we had Bill Buckley, the story you know that I chronicle in Beirut Rules. We had the Archbishop of Canterbury, Terry Waite, that was kidnapped. We had Father Martin Jinko, a Catholic priest. We had Charlie Glass, who was an ABC News correspondent. Uh, uh, Terry Anderson, who worked for the Associated Press. Uh, you know the list just goes on and on. And we had a whole bunch of um, American professors at uh, American University Beirut that were also kidnapped uh, as long as well as uh, French German uh, Italian Korean uh, and Russian um, citizens were also kidnapped by the same group so I'd heard um I forget where I heard this um, that they'd kidnapped some Russians and then in response, the Russians sent their uh, special forces in there and they killed a bunch of people. And then that was sort of the end of them kidnapping Russians. Is there any truth to that? Well, there's a slight variant of that, John. Um, basically, the Russian uh, KGB uh, started kidnapping family members of the hostage takers and threatened to send body parts back if they did not release the Russian diplomats. So, uh, but, you know, the Russians certainly played, uh, you know, with a very heavy hand once their diplomats were kidnapped in Beirut. Um, you know, they threatened to send fingers and hands back and so forth if uh, their diplomats were not, kid you know, released. And, and the Russian diplomats were released. Wow. So it did, it was successful. Yes, it was successful. It, much different strategy than uh, what the United States would have would have done or or we did do. Right, right. And and what were we doing? Were we sending money? Is is that what we did? Well, um, unbeknownst to those of us working the hostage problem, we had um, the National Security Council was sending um, tow missiles and cash uh, in exchange for hostages. Uh, but, you know, our mission was to try to get Bill Buckley, the CIA station chief out of captivity. But unfortunately, John, he had been beaten and tortured to the point that, you know, he died of pneumonia while in captivity. We just did not know that. Uh, so, you know, I, I I'm not going to point fingers over that strategy by any stretch of the imagination. I think, most of us, if we were presented with the same problem, would do anything to get our family and loved members, loved ones back. And I think that they were trying to do everything they possibly could, you know, to get Bill Buckley brought home because, um, you know, he was uh, such a uh, critical, you know, intelligence asset as being, 
you know, the, the most senior CIA intelligence officer in Beirut at the time. So, you know, we were trying to move heaven and earth to get Bill back. Uh, we just lacked the human intelligence to know exactly where he was. And how long was he in captivity? He was in captivity uh, a, a little over a year before he died. And we don't know the exact date that he died. Um, but if you fast forward, you know, a few years later, um, we were able to uh, recover his body in 1991, uh, along with um, the remains of Lieutenant Colonel Rich Higgins, the, the Marine that also had been kidnapped and murdered by the same group. And how did that happen? Uh, we utilized um, some um, back channels that we were working within the Lebanese at the time. Uh, we were offering a lot of reward money to bring their re remains home or to at least tip us off. And uh, we were successful in, in finally bringing them home where they could you know, have uh, proper uh, resting grounds for eternity. Right. So touching on this topic, it's, you know, I think it's important to also speak about Iran as they're responsible for a lot of this. And um, the U.S. has had a complicated relationship with Iran, uh, probably dating back to the 50s. Um, and, and then going forward, after the revolution in 79... Um, as I understand it, the the revolution came about. There was a lot of young students who were really passionate about bringing changes to the country and and sort of not living under a dictatorship style uh, system. And then they kind of got out of the fire and went into the frying pan, so to speak. Well. When you're looking at Iran, um, and we actually had the original case file in our office from the 79 embassy takeover, and um, I, I interviewed one of the agents that were there. He was kind of a legend in our service, uh, and he actually helped in our Benghazi story as well because of the hostage aspect of that. Um, we've never gotten it right from a foreign policy perspective, John, and, and, and I don't know why. I you know, I, I was a guy that was down in the weeds. I was a, you know, an agent doing interviews and putting together investigations. You know, I'm not engaged in dis diplomacy by any stretch of the imagination, but, um, it, it seems like the Iranians are always playing chess and we're playing checkers. And, um, you know, they've been able to, um, uh, kill a lot of Americans, never be held accountable for it in my eyes. And, um, they, they certainly pose a strategic threat to the state of Israel that is somewhat frightening. So, you know, I, I know that Iran is, you know, number one on Israel's intelligence collection list and, and rightfully so. I mean, we have the, uh, ability to have great distance in our geography doesn't, you know, put us in, in harms in direct harms way. But, you know, Iran certainly has enough uh, clout in the Middle East to create chaos 
for us, the Saudis, the Israelis, the Emiratis, and the list is long. Um, so um, I'm not overly optimistic that that any administration is going to be able to ever figure Iran out. Yeah, it seems like they are absolutely committed to doing anything they can at, to make life harder for the United States and also the countries that you named, uh, Israel, probably at the top of the list. Um, and it seems like since, you know, kind of talking about policy and things like that, since uh, 2003 and the invasion of Iraq, their influence has only grown in the Middle East. Without a doubt, which is frightening uh, to uh, you know the old graybeards like me, because of uh, we we remember Bill Buckley, we remember the U.S. embassies lying in rubble, you know we remember uh, Lieutenant Colonel Rich Higgins, uh, we remember the '79 embassy takeover and our hostages you know held for a year, so um, you know a nuclear Iran is frightening. Now on the flip side. You know, some would say that, uh, you know, you under, uh, you know, the others would say that, well, a nuclear Iran, um, you know, in- ensures that no one would ever attack Iran. You know, I, I'm not so sure about that. I, I I'm kind of scared to death of the thought of uh, the mullahs getting their hands on a nuclear weapon, and and I'm sure the Israeli intelligence service, uh, um, you know, has plans for that to never happen. Right. Well, it's 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 since come out that they've run a highly successful, basically, assassination campaign against their scientists, and they've bombed facilities that they were, you know, supposedly um, doing things to turn the nuclear energy, like to weaponize it, basically. And and Israel is is very on top of it. Um, and from what I, if I could recall correctly. After the towers fell and the U.S. was focused on Afghanistan, I think that Iran had something to do with hooking the U.S. up with the Northern Alliance. And I think there was some kind of opportunity there to sort of have better relations. Um, but then there was some sort of political saber rattling on the on the side of the U.S. And then after the invasion of Iraq took place... Um, and even right before it, Iran was setting up to make life harder for the U.S. Um, once Saddam was removed from power. Yeah, that gets back to the great game that they're playing, John. And that's to my point of uh, Iran playing chess. They uh, not as bad as the Chinese with the long view, but uh, if you look at Iran's strategy since '79, uh, it's been fairly consistent and. They've, they've managed to just tie us in knots from just a foreign policy perspective and and almost uh, dictate, you know, us, you know, response responding in a very reactive mode, uh, not in a proactive capacity. Right. Um, and then there was the uh, it's kind of still some of the the fallout from this is still taking place where they had. Um, an agreement that Obama had signed and then Trump had walked walked it back. And, um, you know, now it seems like tensions are rising again. But it's it's almost hard to, um, 
like believe anything that they say regarding them doing things where they're not trying to sort of stick their stick their thumb in the in the face of the U.S. or Israel or, or anybody else, really. Oh, without a doubt, and they have a very formidable, um, very capable uh, intelligence service. Uh, they're just as good as uh, the Israeli Mossad or the CIA. Uh, they have an extraordinarily cyber uh, capacity. Uh, they're very good at hacking. Uh, they're they're really good at human intelligence operations. So, you know, uh, the money that the Obama administration shipped back to Iran, uh, you know, was used to bolster the IRGC and the Ministry of Intelligence and and Security. So, um, you know, th- this is a force that. Um, in, in the shadows that, you know, we will always be dealing with over the next 20 years. I mean, I tell our analysts here at Stratfor all the time, the, the younger ones, I mean, uh, you guys have got a job for life because, um, you know, the Middle East and Iran will always be around. The Israeli-Palestinian problem will always be there. You know, Iran will always be causing trouble and mayhem. And um, so um, uh, it's called job security. Yeah, for sure. Um, I, even right now, I mean, they're they're having uh, huge protests all across the country, and the, the internet is basically shut down in Iran, so that the things that are happening there won't get out to the rest of the world. Yeah, they're very good at that too, and uh, they have, uh, you know, their cyber actors are are as evidenced by what we're seeing, very similar to what you'll see take place in China from time to time. So. That just goes to show you, you know, the scope of their mindset and just the uh, uh, oppressive society that they live in. Right, right, and and that's why, you know, I, I feel like in '79 they kind of thought that they were getting out from under the thumb of a dictatorship, but they kind of just rolled right into a different kind of dictatorship, so to speak. Yeah, and you're either one of them inside the security services or the ministries or you're not, you know, it's from what we understand and watch here at Stratfor, you know, the, the country does have a lot of problems with employment and so forth, healthcare. Uh, but, uh, you know, they do reward those that are loyal to the, the mullahs and to the IRGC and the intelligence services. Um, and it's a tough, hard target for the U.S. to go after and, and the Five Eyes nations to kind of target. And is it tough because they're so sort of closed off and, and it is like a dictatorship? Is, is that what makes it hard? It, yes. And uh, without a U.S. embassy footprint inside, makes it difficult for intelligence collection purposes. Um, so that's also a problem. But they also have a very good counterintelligence service, you know, that are looking for uh, defectors and so forth. So like a few years back, the, um, you know, a few of their scientists were assassinated. You know, some have alleged it was uh, uh, the CIA and the Mossad that was that was uh, targeting them. Right. Well, they just clamped down and just refused to let their scientists travel. So, you know, they they can shift and adapt uh, accordingly. Right. So I, I wanted to ask you about um, uh, there seems to be a shift in U.S. foreign policy uh, under this administration. Uh, do you think that there is a serious change taking place? 
Uh, I think that any administration that comes in always has policy shifts, like we were talking about with um, the Obama administration shipping the plane load of cash to Iran. Um, you know, that's NSC driven, that's policy driven by the National Security Council. Uh, so, you know, that doesn't surprise me in the least. I think if you forecast out, and I don't know if President Trump will will win again or not, but, um, you know, we can anticipate change in foreign policy just because a president has much more latitude and your ability to deal with international events than you do with domestic events where there's so much oversight. So right. there's actually much more leeway to – to uh, from a foreign policy perspective, you know, being dictated and driven out of the National Security Council or the Oval Office. Right, right. Versus right domestic, there's so many different things and hoops you got to go through. Um, but foreign, you can just say this is what I want to happen and and this is what happens. That's correct. That's correct. So as far as like some of the the, the shifts or what is starting to look like different shifts. Um, it looks like some of the traditional alliances the United States has had um, may not – it may not be like a complete split, but it's looking like the U.S. is kind of going in a slightly different direction. Um, I know that when – at least when Trump was campaigning, um, he was sort of pushing back against the idea of the U.S. supporting NATO so much financially and in and, um, and other ways as well. Um, I'm not sure how much actual change has taken place, but I know he's just vocalized some of these uh, ideas that he's had regarding that. Yeah, and that's very interesting, you know, when you start thinking about it. I mean, some of the rumblings we hear out of the Middle East are that, um, um, you know, the the Trump administration has certainly, you know, hooked their horse to the uh, Saudi wagon with um, um, – which to you know is is caused a lot of consternation to, for example, the Emiratis and the Jordanians, and um, then the NATO issue. But you know, also, I think it's important to understand that you know just because what is said publicly at times doesn't necessarily mean that the agents and the intelligence community are not doing their job. Right. I mean, you know, to be quite blunt, when I was an agent. Um, yeah, you know, you had policy guidance, but we all kind of still did our job. And, you know, I have faith and confidence in the agents and the analysts and the military that they're doing their job. And, you know, generals will come and go and and political appointees will come and go. But, you know, the, the folks down in the weeds are still still getting the job done. Right. And I think that's um interesting point. Because I feel like since uh, the end of World War Two, uh, obviously there's differences in presidents and and things like that, and directors of the CIA and you know head of the Pentagon and everything. But I feel like for the most part, the U.S. foreign policy has moved in a similar direction since the end of World War Two up till now. Yeah, you're going to have you know your great power shifts and competition between Russia and China, which will never go away. Uh, you know, I, I talk about this all the time. I don't think the Cold War really ever ended. Right. So, um, you know, that's always going to be out there and, and always going to be the kind of issues that, from a strategic perspective, we're going to have to deal with. Um, but, you know, on the flip side, you know, the 
you know, a nuclear Iran and Israel decides to strike, you know, the whole the whole world could could be on fire in very short order. Uh, you know, once uh, other nation states kind of cause problems and then we're reacting to them instead of getting in front of them. Right. And I think that's another interesting point as well, because I feel like one incident that could take place in several areas on the planet could lead to a larger wars and and, uh, potentially a, a third world war. And I'm not sure how how much people realize that is a possibility. Well, big wars start in small places. Right. Right. So if anybody listening wants to check you out or um, uh, get, a, get a hold of any of your books, where's the best place that they can do some of that? Like social media, Amazon? Social media is the best place to look. Uh, you can find me on Twitter at Fred underscore Burton. Uh, you can obviously uh, visit the Stratfor Worldview website. Uh, and I also have my own website, which is officialfredburton.com. Love to hear from any of your listeners. And can you uh, drop the names, the titles of your books, just in case people want to pick those up as well? Absolutely. Uh, my book, my first book is called Ghost. Uh, my second book is Chasing Shadows. My third book is uh, Under Fire. That's the one about Benghazi. And then my last book, or my most current book, is called Beirut Rules. Okay, awesome. Um, It was great talking to you. I really do appreciate you coming on here. I know that the audience is going to have good takeaways and value from uh, our discussion as people are interested in counterterrorism and um, geopolitics around the world. John, thank you so much for having me on your podcast.
Thank mm-hmm. you.